From New York, this is Democracy Now! As Secretary Blinken embarks on this fifth trip to the Middle East, what we need to be watching for is how much Arab and Israeli officials take him seriously. The Biden administration hasn't been able to negotiate an end to the war or even a pathway to ending the wars. Secretary of State Tony Blinken is back in the Middle East as Israel threatens to launch a ground invasion of Rafah, where over half of all residents of Gaza have sought refuge. While the United States has rejected calls for a permanent ceasefire, Blinken is pushing for a new truce and hostage deal. We'll speak to HuffPost's Akbar Shahid Ahmad. Then we speak to an American doctor who recently returned from Gaza. What really gets me is not the ones who are, you know, dead on arrival, unfortunately, because there's nothing maybe that could have been done for them except to stop the bombing. But it's the ones that we could have saved. It's that 15-year-old that had he just gotten to the operating room quick enough, you know, had, had we not been completely overwhelmed with the overflow of 500 patients in the ER overnight. We'll speak to Dr. Seema Jalani and air recordings she made from inside Al-Aqsa Hospital, one of the last functioning hospitals in central Gaza. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Nermeen Sheikh. As Gazans brace for an expected Israeli ground invasion of Rafah, unrelenting attacks across the besieged territory continue as the death toll tops 27,500 people with another 67,000 wounded after nearly four months of daily attacks. Israeli strikes hit residential areas, elementary schools, hospitals and aid distribution sites all within recent days. The Palestine Red Crescent Society published footage Monday showing its Jabalia headquarters in northern Gaza heavily destroyed after Israeli attacks. Meanwhile, an UNRWA food convoy was attacked by Israeli artillery fire Monday. This is Juliette Tuma, communications director for the UN Palestinian Refugee Agency. It was not the first time an UNRWA convoy with the United Nations was attacked. It's the third time a convoy belonging to UNRWA has been exposed to an attack on its way to the north of Gaza or when it is coming back from the north. And this is not acceptable. Humanitarian convoys, according to international humanitarian law, must be protected from all parties to the conflict, also during combat. The UN has appointed a panel to independently review Israeli allegations that a handful of UNRWA staff were involved in Hamas's October 7th attacks. The panel's findings are expected to be released in late March. The U.S. and a dozen other countries have already halted funding for the life-saving agency. Nearly the entire population of Gaza is displaced and reliant on aid. This is Aisha Abu Al-Khair, a mother displaced from Gaza City. In 2024, we're dreaming of living our lives. People move forward and live their lives. We are still chasing a plate of food and bread for our children to survive. We ask of the President of the United States to help the people of Gaza send aid. He can see the situation here in Gaza and how difficult life is and how children are lacking food and water. Instead of helping Israel with rockets and bombardments, he should help the people of Gaza and look at how much the people are struggling to get a plate of food or a loaf of bread. Meanwhile, a new report by Amnesty International says Israel's army has been carrying out unlawful killings of civilians in the occupied West Bank and should be investigated for possible war crimes. 
Amnesty says Israeli forces have displayed, quote, a chilling disregard for Palestinian lives as a wave of brutal violence in the West Bank has intensified since Israel began its assault on Gaza. Amnesty investigated four separate cases of violence, including an Israeli raid on Nur Shams refugee camp in Tulkarm that began October 19th and went on for at least 30 hours as Israeli forces stormed dozens of homes, cut off water and electricity to the camp, destroyed infrastructure with bulldozers and blocked two ambulances from reaching injured residents. At least 13 people, including six children, were killed in the raid. Since October 7th, at least 360 people have been killed by Israeli forces in the West Bank, including 94 children, according to the U.N. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is meeting with leaders in Egypt and Qatar today on his second day of a Middle East tour as a possible new Gaza truce and hostage handover inches forward amid rising regional tensions. Blinken met with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia Monday and will also travel for meetings in Israel and the West Bank. U.S. officials say Blinken's trip is aiming to ease tensions in the Middle East, where the U.S. is supporting Israel's catastrophic war on Gaza, and U.S. military forces have struck Yemen, Iraq and Syria in recent weeks. This comes as Yemen's Houthi forces say they fired more missiles at two U.S. and U.K.-owned vessels in the Red Sea. The Houthi movement said such attacks will continue, quote, until the siege is lifted and the aggression against the Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip is stopped. Meanwhile, France's new foreign minister, Stéphane Sejourné, used his first official visit to Israel on Monday to urge Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to allow an immediate ceasefire and a massive influx of humanitarian aid to Gaza. Sejourné also met with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas Monday, where he called for an end to Israeli settler violence. Nicaragua could move to take Germany, Canada, the UK and the Netherlands to the International Court of Justice over their role in aiding Israel's genocide in Gaza. Nicaragua called on the four nations to immediately stop providing arms, munitions and technology to the Israeli army. Meanwhile, South Africa's Minister of International Relations, Naledi Pandor, says she questioned why International Criminal Court Chief Prosecutor Karim Khan issued an arrest warrant against Russian President Vladimir Putin over his actions in Ukraine, but not for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Pandor visited the ICC offices while in The Hague for the ICJ ruling on South Africa's genocide case against Israel. Prosecutor Khan was not able to answer the question. Back in the U.S., hundreds of Pennsylvanians rallied at the state capital in Harrisburg Monday to demand the state divest millions from Israel bonds. The protest was led by Jewish Voice for Peace, the Philly-Palestine Coalition, and the Council on American-Islamic Relations, CARE. Police arrested at least 126 demonstrators. State Representative Chris Robb attempted to shield protesters from arrest and later defended their right to protest, evoking the history of the civil rights struggle and Black History Month. All the things we talk about during Black History Month or Martin Luther King Day, oh, and all the great things that happened, all of those things were far more than inconvenient. They were radical. They were radical. This is a radical expression of one's First Amendment rights. In the people's house, this is the most ironic place to arrest people for expressing their First Amendment rights. 
A new report by The Guardian has exposed a growing internal rift at CNN over its one-sided coverage of Israel's war on Gaza and the, quote, censoring of Palestinian perspectives. CNN's Atlanta headquarters issues editorial directives for the entire network, relying on official Israeli accounts. In addition, all content must be approved by the Jerusalem Bureau. This comes amid outrage over recent inflammatory headlines in mainstream newspapers in the U.S. On Friday, the Wall Street Journal published an op-ed titled, Welcome to Dearborn, America's Jihad Capital. In response, Dearborn's mayor, Abdullah Hamoud, said he was ramping up police presence across religious sites and landmarks over fears of racist violence. President Biden and Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer both condemned the article. Meanwhile, longtime New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman penned an op-ed titled Understanding the Middle East Through the Animal Kingdom, in which he compared Iran to a parasitoid wasp, writing, quote, We have no counter strategy that safely and efficiently kills the wasp without setting fire to the whole jungle, Friedman wrote. Michigan Congress member and the only Palestinian-American U.S. lawmaker, Rashida Tlaib, said, quote, This is blatant Islamophobia and anti-Arab racism that puts people's lives in danger, she said. In Texas, a man attacked four young Muslim Americans who were driving home from a protest for Palestinian rights in Austin on Sunday. Three of the victims are Palestinian-Americans, including a 23-year-old who was stabbed after the attacker pulled them out of the car. They say the suspect, who's been identified as Bert James Baker, yelled obscenities, including the N-word, and tried to rip off a kefiyah hanging from the car. The Council on American-Islamic Relations, CARE, is calling on authorities to charge Baker with hate crimes, saying, quote, Those responsible for this violence must be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, and those fomenting the anti-Palestinian and anti-Muslim hate that leads to this violence must be condemned. Senegalese lawmakers voted to delay presidential elections until December 15th, following President Macky Sall's announcement Saturday postponing the vote, which had been scheduled for later this month. Chaos overtook the parliament as opposition lawmakers attempted to block the vote in protest. This is not possible. They're stealing from the population of Senegal. Security forces forcibly removed some lawmakers during the session. The election postponement by President Saul, who's already served the maximum two terms allowed, was followed by street protests and accusations of a constitutional coup by his opposition. Rights groups warned Senegal's democracy and political stability are at stake. In Sudan, a new report by Doctors Without Borders warns at least one child dies every two hours in a camp for displaced people in North Darfur as fighting between the Sudanese army and the paramilitary rapid support forces enters its ninth month. The humanitarian aid group estimates that about 13 children die each day in the Zamzam camp, one of the largest sites for internally displaced people in Sudan, where MSF is the sole health provider. Children who are suffering from severe malnutrition are expected to die within a few weeks unless they receive urgent care. This comes as the World Food Programme says many people are dying of starvation as hunger has doubled in Sudan over the past year due to the ongoing violence that has cut off civilians from life-saving aid. 
Some 18 million people across Sudan are facing acute hunger, while nearly 11 million have been displaced from their homes. Back in the U.S., the Poor People's Campaign launched a 40-week operation to catalyze the voting power of poor people across the country. Some 7,000 volunteers will be tasked with mobilizing 15 million voters ahead of November's election, with the first major coordinated actions taking place outside 30 state houses on March 2nd. This is Bishop William Barber unveiling the initiative at a press conference in Washington, D.C. on Monday. For far too long, extremists have blamed poor people and low-wage people for their plight, while moderates too often have ignored poor people, appealing instead to the so-called middle class. Meanwhile, poor and low-income, low-wage people have become nearly half of this country, and we are here today to make one thing clear. Poor and low-wage brothers and sisters have the power to determine and decide the 2024 elections and elections beyond. And millions of people gathered across Turkey today to commemorate one year since a devastating earthquake and its aftershocks killed over 50,000 people. In Antakya, the capital of Hatay, the worst-hit southern province, crowds held a moment of silence at 4.17 in the morning local time, marking the moment the quake struck. Protests broke out as residents continued to demand justice and accountability from authorities for poorly regulated constructions and for delays in responding to the disaster, which left left many to die, trapped in the rubble amid freezing temperatures. Others gathered in Malatya to mourn the dead. I lost my children, I lost my daughter, son-in-law, my three grandchildren. It feels like I'm living the same days again. Only their memories are left, their photos, their love is what is left. They are my children, what can I say? It is just difficult. The 7.8 earthquake and aftershocks killed some 6,000 people in northern Syria, worsening an already dire humanitarian crisis after over a decade of conflict. Many who lost their homes are still sleeping in tents. This is a Syrian man who lost his home and remains unhoused along with his neighbor. He has nothing now. He is staying in this tent and has nothing. His situation is really bad. No one asked about him nor came to check. He's staying in the tent here. God help him and everyone. We are all staying in tents after a year of the earthquake. What can we do? And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, Secretary of State Tony Blinken is back in the Middle East as Israel threatens to launch a ground invasion of Rafah, where over half of all residents of Gaza have sought refuge. The U.S. has rejected calls for a permanent ceasefire, and Blinken is pushing for a new truce and hostage deal. We'll speak to Huffington Post's Akbar Shahid Ahmad.
Nixon Baba, performed by Mariam Saleh and Zaid Hamdan. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Nermeen Sheikh, joined by Amy Goodman. Hi, Amy. Hi, Nermeen, and welcome to all our listeners and our viewers around the country and around the world. Well, I'm not a Novid anymore. For four years, I somehow avoided getting COVID, but I ended up getting it. Um, asymptomatic. I'm at the tail end of it. Um, I just have to go from positive to negative. It's not exactly in my nature to go negative, but I'm really working on it. Until then, Nermeen's there and I'm here. And most importantly, on with the show. We really look forward to having you back, Amy. Secretary of State Tony Blinken is heading to Qatar and then to Israel and the West Bank after holding talks in Egypt and Saudi Arabia. This comes as Israel threatens to launch a ground invasion of the southern Gaza city of Rafah, where over half of all residents of Gaza have sought refuge. Palestinian health officials say Israeli attacks killed 107 Palestinians over the past day, bringing the Palestinian death toll to over 27,500, including over 11,500 children. This is Blinken's fifth trip to the Middle East since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. The State Department says Blinken is pushing for a pause to Israel's assault and for Hamas to release all remaining hostages seized nearly four months ago. On Monday, Blinken met with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in Riyadh, where they discussed a potential deal involving Saudi Arabia normalizing relations with Israel in exchange for Israel agreeing to a pathway for a Palestinian state. Saudi Arabia is also seeking a new military pact with the United States and U.S. assistance with its nuclear program. This comes as Hamas is reportedly reviewing a truce and hostage deal negotiated in part by mediators from Egypt and Qatar. Blinken's trip comes just days after the United States bombed 85 targets in Syria and Iraq in retaliation for a recent drone strike by Iran-backed militants on a base in Jordan that killed three U.S. troops. The U.S. has also repeatedly bombed Yemen over the past two weeks, targeting sites controlled by Houthi forces who have been targeting ships linked to Israel and the United States to protest Israel's assault on Gaza. We begin today's show with Akbar Shahid Ahmad, senior diplomatic correspondent for HuffPost, based in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Shah, uh, Akbar. We are very happy to have you here. If you could first respond, tell us what's most important about the meetings that Blinken uh, had already with the crown prince and his meetings today in Egypt. What's at stake? Thanks for having me, Nermeen. Secretary Blinken is hoping that Arab officials will finally believe the U.S. is serious about an end to the carnage in Gaza. It's a hard ask because a lot of Arab diplomats, a lot of regional diplomats who are worried about the spiraling conflict feel the Biden administration has no real interest in pressuring Israel to stop. And you've got repeated comments from Israeli officials, most recently Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu just yesterday, saying, we want to see Hamas leaders killed. We want to see months more of war, if not a year. And ideas for a resettlement of Gaza, extremely controversial proposals. So Blinken, on the one hand, is dealing with Israelis who are not saying what Arab diplomats and the U.S. want to hear. He's representing a president who has a policy of near total support for Israel, and he's getting flack from Arab diplomats. Blinken is, of course, a skilled foreign policy official, a skilled mediator, 
But it's a very hard task for him, Narmeen, because there's not a lot of goodwill or faith right now for the U.S. Akbar, if you can talk more about what you think took place before the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and Blinken and the significance of what exactly um, Saudi Arabia, the United States and Israel are proposing, the Hamas attack on October 7th. Uh, took place just around the time that Saudi Arabia was going to normalize relations with Israel. Talk about what that would mean and exactly what these proposals are and how possible you think they are. Absolutely, Amy. So prior to the October 7th attack, uh, the U.S., Saudi Arabia, Israel were talking about this kind of tripartite deal that would involve the Saudis giving Israel recognition from Saudi Arabia, which is a huge win for Israel, right? After many years of conflict, feeling threatened by its Arab neighbors, this would be the biggest, most important Muslim-majority country in the world, essentially saying, we recognize Israel, and importantly, without Israel having to make significant concessions on the Palestinian file. So that's where this whole process, while it's been beneficial for the U.S., for Saudi, for Israel, the Palestinians and their advocates have been saying, where are we in this conversation? So prior to October 7th, there was already huge anxiety about these talks. There was dissatisfaction. And then the attacks happened. And, you know, no one less than President Biden has said they see that U.S.-Israel-Saudi process as part of the reason for the October 7th attacks, right? It was a way, in part, for Palestinians to kind of bring this issue back on the, on the negotiating table. However, since then, what we've seen four months into this war is that rather than considering, well, maybe this approach got us to conflict, the Biden administration has doubled down on the U.S.-Saudi-Israel deal. So they've taken the Gaza war and they've tied it to what they were doing before the Gaza war. Their new proposal is we'll rebuild Gaza using Saudi money. This will be part of the whole package that will get the Israelis to make some significant concessions to Palestinians. It'll get the Saudis to have the American commitments they want. But in terms of the feasibility, it's, it's quite, I'd say at best, contentious, right? Like, uh, U.S. officials I talked to within the government, one described this as, quote, delusionally optimistic. You've got so many parties involved. You do not have a serious commitment from the U.S. to get Palestine anything major, right, beyond economic guarantees or the reconstruction of Gaza. And then you've got what you referenced earlier, and I mean, the, the strikes by Iran-backed militias. There are a lot of what's called spoilers, a lot of other forces around the region who don't like this deal, who certainly see the deal, especially between Saudi, Israel and the U.S., opponents of Iran, as very risky for Iran and its network. So in terms of the actual feasibility of something being approved, I'm skeptical. And it's important to remember there's a very short runway now prior to the election. And if if the Biden administration wants to get a security treaty with Saudi Arabia through the Senate, while they still have control of the Senate, I mean, they've only got six months to do it. And then can you talk about what's happening today with Tony Blinken in Cairo and Qatar before going to Israel and then the occupied West Bank? Absolutely. So the Egyptians and the Qataris are critical mediators because the U.S. does not speak directly to Hamas, which the U.S. lists as a terror organization. So any messages from the U.S. have to go through Qatar and, and Egypt. And Israel also doesn't really like directly dealing with Hamas. So Blinken is in Cairo 
and, and he was in Doha, kind of hoping to get those governments to pressure Hamas. Now the yes is on Hamas's side. Israel has kind of tacitly agreed to a truce and hostage release. But the longer there's a delay here, the more it seems there's, that this deal isn't achieving what the Palestinians or Hamas might really want. Right. So you've seen Prime Minister Netanyahu come out and say, I want to kill Hamas leadership. That raises the stakes for Hamas if they're saying, why would we agree to a two week deal if after that you're just going to come back, invade Rafa, kill our leadership? So I think there's the prospects of a deal to me seem low right now. Some of the other important sticking points are, of course, there's there's broad agreement that the hostages, particularly civilians, particularly older people and children should be released. That's kind of generally agreed upon. But the question is, how many Palestinian political prisoners is Israel willing to release in return? There's a certain Palestinian leader called Marwan Barghouti, really seen as a unifying Palestinian figure. And Hamas has said they want him out of jail. Now, for a lot of Israelis who don't want to see a kind of unified Palestinian movement, that's a no-go. So there are a lot of sticking points here, and it's up to Secretary Blinken to kind of push everyone towards a median. Uh, I think the Qataris can certainly play a very helpful role here with Hamas, but but any indication of U.S. seriousness is what's needed. And we haven't yet had that, certainly not from President Biden. And Akbar, I mean, as you said, the, the issue of the release of Palestinian prisoners is something that Netanyahu, at least, has uh, ruled out, uh, as well as the creation of a Palestinian state. So it's unclear how, you know, this, these positions can be reconciled because there's no incentive uh, for Hamas uh, to go along with this. But I wanted to ask, I mean, Saudi Arabia is also pushing minimally uh, for the, the minimal condition of the creation of, of a, a Palestinian state. But where do other Arab states stand? Uh, including Egypt and and Qatar, who are the negotiators, as you said, the mediators. Uh, Where else do Arab states stand on this? And is it important at all? It's, you know, it's critical. I I love how you phrase it, Narmeen, because the Saudis certainly want us to think they are pushing for the creation of a Palestinian state. But their language is sort of shifting, right? Sometimes they say creating a Palestinian state. Sometimes they say a pathway towards a Palestinian state or irreversible steps. So that goalpost is shifting all the time. And I think for the Saudis in particular, who have, especially under Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, really expressed disdain for the Palestinian cause in recent years and, and the sense that it's been a burden for the Arab world and a, a, a deep enthusiasm for relations with Israel. For the Saudis, I'd say kind of limited Palestinian concessions would be acceptable if they can get some kind of Palestinian window dressing of approval. And I've heard from my sources that there are quiet conversations going on between the Saudis and maybe some friendly Palestinians who might be willing to bless whatever the Saudis can get. In terms of other states, Qatar is one of the firmest um, in terms of wanting to see a resolution here. I think for a lot of states that maybe were not taking the strongest position earlier, so think about the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, Arab countries that have made deals with Israel. I think after this war and after the spiraling tensions, right, the risk of a huge Middle East war, those countries are feeling more and more, we need a resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That is meaningful. For Egypt, I think that desire is there, particularly because, uh, because of the strikes you mentioned by the Houthi movement in Yemen. Shipping is not going through the Suez Canal as much. And for Egypt, that's an economic lifeline, right? So they want the war over, so the Houthis stop attacking shipping. 
At the same time, it's really critical to remember, is Egypt helped Israel with its blockade of Gaza, right, for the last 16 years. Egypt has not, for years, wanted to see a strong independent Palestinian presence. So I think they'll be weighing that quite cautiously, and they won't necessarily be such firm advocates for serious Palestinian statehood. And Akbar, you've written uh, extensively at the moment we see Netanyahu being, uh, you know, uh, singled out as the person who is responsible for the present situation. He certainly hasn't uh, made it any easier and arguably, of course, much more brutal. Although, as you point out, it's important to look at the long term uh, uh, context in Israel and in particular U.S. support uh, for Israeli policies, whatever form they've taken. So if you could elaborate on that and what distinctions you see between Netanyahu and his predecessors on the question of Gaza. Absolutely. So Netanyahu is an easy bogeyman from a U.S. political standpoint. You're already seeing Democrats who are kind of struggling, scrambling to defend President Biden's policy here. They're saying, well, it's not really about Biden. It's about Netanyahu. And given that Netanyahu was so close to former President Trump, opposed President Barack Obama so vocally. For Democratic voters, yes, Netanyahu is an easy bogeyman, but absolutely we have to look at the context. And for the first three years of the Biden administration, two of those years, they did not have a prime minister, Netanyahu. They had a different Israeli government, slightly more moderate, certainly including non-Netanyahu figures. And in that moment, the U.S. did not, I mean, try to pursue any kind of progress, right? President Biden didn't even reverse policies that President Trump had imposed that were anti-Palestinian and pro-Israeli. So uh, to me, the the thing that needs to be questioned in this moment, certainly Netanyahu personally corrupt, attempting to hold on to power for as long as he can. But one, as one Israeli analyst put it, there's a, quote, culture of impunity, right, in U.S.-Israel relations. And that's what really needs to be analyzed right now. So if you think about the broader Israeli political establishment, the person who would take over if Netanyahu were to be unseated in weeks, months later this year, is someone called Benny Gantz. He's a former Israeli general. The military is understood to be a bit more pragmatic on the Palestinian issue, just from a strategic and security standpoint, than politicians are. All that said, even a prime minister, Benny Gantz, might not be willing to accept statehood, right? Might not be willing to give Palestinians security control in Gaza. So the actual culture of the U.S. and Israel, unfortunately over decades, has become one in which even these small steps towards progress are so difficult, it's like pulling teeth. And, and I, I just draw people back to the, the last few examples of effective U.S. leverage over Israel. Interestingly, they've been under Republican presidents, um, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush to some extent, but we haven't seen that in the last 10 or 15 years, and certainly not under Presidents Biden or really Obama. Akbar, I wanted to talk about the level of dissent in this country and in other countries that are supporting Israel right now. Um, you just wrote a piece about over 800 government officials in the United States and Europe that have anonymously signed a statement uh, uh, that their own government support for Israel is in violation of uh, their values. If you can talk more about that. And also the level at the grassroots in the United States, right up into the White House and the State Department 
In fact, let me play a clip. We interviewed Josh Paul, a high-level State Department official, when he quit. You were the one who broke the story about Josh Paul. I just have to ask before we go, Josh Paul, we spoke to you soon after you resigned from the State Department in October. Um, this was, of course, uh, in the midst of Israel's bombardment of Gaza, which came after the October 7th surprise attack on Israel that killed 1,200. Uh, can you talk about the response uh, of your colleagues at the State Department? Have others resigned in other parts of the government? Uh, so we have seen, uh, certainly from the UN, uh, UN senior official Cade McIver resigned. We have not seen, to my knowledge, uh, significant resignations within the US government. But I have heard and continue to hear uh, from many of my former colleagues uh, who are really trying to find what mechanisms they can use to slow this down, to change the policy. Uh, I fear that their efforts at this point continue to be in vain. I think we need to see a, a policy change from the top. Uh, but I know a lot of good people are continuing to make the argument. So that's Josh Paul, who quit the State Department, and he is not the only one. And I wanted to get a sense from you, how aware is President Biden of the enormous, as uh, our guest yesterday said, uh, Matt Duss, incandescent kind of rage um, in the Democratic base, but also in high levels of the government? We just uh, Nermeen just read headlines in Harrisburg, the capital of Pennsylvania. Over a hundred people led, Jew by, led by Jewish Voice for Peace were arrested, uh, demanding a ceasefire and much more. Um, talk about all these levels of dissent in the United States and outside and what effect it's having. Is Biden fearful uh, that his very reelection is in jeopardy? Absolutely, Amy. Uh, to your, I'll start with the letter you mentioned because it's, it's a fascinating statement. More than 800 officials in the U.S., in European institutions, in the Netherlands, France, Britain. I just heard from another European official yesterday who just signed the letter. So the numbers on that letter are just going to keep growing. It's not closed yet. I'd say the, the dissent is it's striking because given the initial attack, there was such deep sympathy for Israel, which is a close U.S. partner, there was such a sense of, we want to do something to help. But I think it became so clear within three or four days to people that President Biden's approach to helping Israel was not going to be measured or strategic or involve planning, consultation, all of that. It was just full tilt, whatever they want, whatever the consequences. And I think that's where you see a lot of dissent come from. It comes from Moral reasons, certainly for some folks within government, for people in the democratic base, also from strategic considerations, right? Also from the sense of, is the U.S. tearing up goodwill and shoving away the good work that we have done over years and decades, particularly after former President Trump, to reestablish America's reputation in the world, right? Is that all moot now? And I think that's only grown since October because President Biden has not been willing to shift in any tangible way. In terms of his own awareness of that, what's so striking about this moment, too, is there is a huge national security establishment here in Washington, as I know you, you both know, uh, so many layers, counter-terror, State Department, Treasury. But this policy is being controlled in a group of, I would say, 20 to 30 close officials around the president, right? So 
What's really important to remember there is there is a real filtering of information. And it's indisputable, of course, President Biden is going to campaign rallies and events and he's seeing the protesters. But to what extent is he aware that many of the actual foreign policy and national security experts within his government who are nonpartisan are opposed to this policy? I think that's a little questionable, right? Because advisors around him have their own priorities. Uh, a gentleman called Brett McGurk, the top White House Middle East official who I've reported on extensively, is really pushing that U.S.-Saudi-Israel deal. And President Biden has been going along with that. I think there's very heated debates in the president's close circle. But because especially the State Department has been so frozen out at this moment, and the way I've heard it from State Department officials is they've literally been told, we understand your concern. Why don't you try to work on another part of the world? You know, why don't you look at sort of the Pacific or Latin America? Just apply your skills there. I think that kind of dismissal of this really reasoned dissent and the response to it of listening sessions and town halls and we feel your pain, people don't want their pain to be felt. They want to see a shift. So I think you'll see even more pushback from within government, certainly from within the party base. I think one of the important things, and maybe this is how the message will get through to the president, is not necessarily from his White House national security team of Jake Sullivan, Brett McGurk, Tony Blinken, but maybe through his political contacts, right? You've seen multiple Democratic senators, Chris Van Hollen, importantly of Maryland, but, but many others, uh, Chris Coons even of Delaware, who's personally close to the president, they've publicly started to say, okay, we need to see a shift from Israel. So once those lawmakers, once governors, once others who are actually elected officials start standing up, you might see a shift from the president. But right now, there's still a wariness even on, on those fronts. I reported yesterday that this new bipartisan border package that was unveiled had Democratic senators agreeing to defund the UN agency for Palestinians. That's a reversal from the Biden administration's own policy, a reversal from Democrats, a triumph from Republicans. So I think as soon as elected Democrats kind of find that assertiveness, that's when you might start to see a shift from the president. Well, we'll just be speaking uh, to a doctor who's uh, recently returned from Gaza, where we'll discuss uh, what's happening with UNRWA uh, in uh, Gaza. Thank you so much, Akbar Shahid Ahmad, uh, senior diplomatic correspondent for HuffPost, based in Washington, D.C. Next, we speak to an American doctor recently returned from Gaza, pediatrician Dr. Seema Jalani, with the International Rescue Committee. Back in a minute.
Naima or Blessings by Sudanese singer Al-Sara featuring Huda Asfur. We spend the rest of the hour with an American doctor who just spent two weeks in central Gaza. Dr. Seema Jalani is a pediatrician who volunteered in the Al-Aqsa Hospital Emergency Room as part of a team of doctors with the International Rescue Committee, where she's senior technical advisor and leads their emergency health responses globally. The team included doctors from both IRC and Medical Aid for Palestinians. Before she joins us, we'll play some of Dr. Jelani's voice notes that she recorded in Al-Aqsa Hosp- Hospital's emergency room and also at night in the compound housing the emergency medical team. So we're in the resuscitation room at Al-Aqsa Hospital. It's a mass casualty. The site of the mass casualty was a school. Uh, of the five casualties, four are children. So he was injured in the first day of the war. And now we're day 82. And he's waiting. I'm so sorry. You can hear the... You can hear the airstrikes coming in now. It's it's about 2 a.m. And this is the sound of drones right outside my window and also overhead flying um, war airplanes, I believe. I can't sleep, so I decided to do this voice note. Um, it's a very specific hellscape that exists here in Gaza when you're cursed enough to hear the, the words from a doctor that say, whose body part is that? Don't carry it through the halls. I don't want children seeing that. And that is um, a quote from one of my colleagues uh, in the emergency room where we saw a leg being carried, a lower leg with the boot still on, the sock still on, and it was being carried through the emergency room. We've arrived here at Alexa Hospital Emergency Room, and what I'm seeing here is children lying on the ground, um, double amputation on one child, um, and there are no beds available, so people are literally just on the ground. Um, seeking treatment. We've already had three parents come up to us and ask, uh, they see the stethoscope and they ask me, can you come see my child? Can you come see my child? And I'm waiting for the local doctors to come in to be able to guide us through what we need to do and do a handover. Um, there is one child that I'm looking at, approximately eight years old, at the uh, lying on the ground. Um, next to him is a woman in a wheelchair who's waiting to be seen. Um, the one on the ground has uh, bandages on bilateral lower extremities uh, going all the way up and looks like he's been brought in overnight. Um, and we're hearing right now that it was a terrible, terrible night because of the bombing in Al-Mughazi uh, where the people had been told to evacuate and then subsequently were bombed. Um, there are definitely more people here than yesterday and yesterday was very full, so no beds available uh, as I said, people, uh, there's not really room or space for us to breathe or think. Um, there's a gentleman here that's sobbing in front of me and being comforted by maybe his son, maybe a stranger, I don't know, but he's an older gentleman with a bandage on his head who's just sitting and holding his head in his hands, um, crying. 
uh, and head hung low. And then there's one, two, three, four, six children in my line of sight right now from the corner that need medical attention urgently. One of whom is um, crying, a little boy, around six or seven years old, wiping his tears. I can't see the injuries uh, clearly, um, but we'll get started to work today to see how we can support and help them through this, uh, through their tragedy. That feels very close. You don't get to hear much whistle before it comes. One morning, we arrived to a nurse who was quietly sobbing in the corner. His colleague had been killed the night before, and he had tried to resuscitate him in the emergency room. He is dignified in his grief. I ask, should we leave? But instead, he just thanks us for our presence and asks us to see a few patients on his behalf. He just could not face the grueling work and the patients outside the room right now. I felt rewarded if I could be helpful to this one person in this one moment. As I was rounding about two hours later, I raised my head from a patient to see him. Again, right back at work, as if nothing had happened. The next day, we see a 23-year-old patient with his lower leg blown off so badly, it's disconnected from its upper leg, floppy. I look down to plant my stethoscope on his chest, only to find him still wearing his UNRWA, or U-N-R-W-A, vest as a staff member. The only comfort I can provide him is to wipe the dried blood off his face to moisten his dry lips as he yearns for some water, quietly lifting his neck for a little more. I quieten his fear with a wet washcloth to his forehead and some whispers of sweetness, of calm. None of these interventions are morphine. He died on the floor of a Gaza emergency room with little more than my hand in his hand and a washcloth to his forehead. Those were voice notes recorded by Dr. Seema Jalani, a senior emergency health technical advisor and pediatrician who traveled to Gaza to volunteer in the Al-Aqsa Hospital emergency room as part of a team of doctors from the IRC and Medical Aid for Palestinians. Dr. Jalani previously worked in Gaza and the West Bank in 2005 and 2015. She's also a freelance journalist who was nominated for a Peabody Award for her 2006 radio documentary, Israel and Palestine, The Human Cost of the Occupation. She joins us now from Brussels. Dr. Seema Jalani, welcome back to Democracy Now! Uh, Those were uh, immensely haunting uh, notes, voice notes that you made. If you could talk about your journey to Gaza in December, uh, where you went from, how long you stayed, and what you witnessed. We departed uh, Cairo on uh, December 25th as part of an emergency medical team with the IRC and Medical Aid for Palestinians in partnership. Um, From Cairo, uh, we arrived uh, through the Sinai, which itself is a militarized zone, and then Al-Arish, and then then, uh, overnighted there, and then following that, uh, 
completed the two-day journey to Rafah and crossed over uh, into the Gaza Strip uh, as a team um, and later went to our guest house. And the drive from the Rafah border all the way up to the guest house, which should only have uh, been a few kilometers, maybe 10 at most, maybe seven, took several hours, two to three hours, if I recall, because um, everyone was leaving and, and evacuating from the north. Um, there were people piled into cars, vans, if they were lucky, because fuel is such a precious commodity. There were babies falling asleep. There were pets and cats and dogs and families and blankets and mattresses, any food items you can imagine, um, piled into donkey carts and people hanging off trying to evacuate. It was a sea of human tragedy coming coming straight out of the border, um, straight, in, straight into southern Rafah. Um, and it was quite a harrowing scene. People that were barefoot looking for shelter, looking for garbage bags to put up tents, looking for lumber, um, quite, quite something. And I've worked in several areas of conflict. It was quite staggering. Dr. Jelani, it must be just incredible for you to listen back to what you were saying so immediate as you whispered into your microphone, whether you were holding the hand of a dying man or with a baby or in the barracks where you were staying. The place where the doctor slept, does that even exist anymore? Um, our guest house was bombed shortly after I left. Um, and I'm not sure of, it's certainly not functional or able to be resided in. Um, I don't know of how, how it looks anymore, but certainly it is, it it has been bombed. Yes. And one of the people you describe, um, helping on the floor of the hospital, and I was wondering if you can talk about the significance of Al-Aqsa and what does it mean for so many hospitals not to be functioning? had was wearing an UNRWA vest. Um, it is the center of controversy right now. Um, it, Netanyahu talks about getting rid of UNRWA the way he talks about getting rid of Hamas. Talk about the central role UNRWA plays, whether we're talking about education, whether we're talking about hospitals. Well, I worked at Al-Aqsa Hospital, which was one of the last remaining hospitals in the middle part of Gaza or central Gaza. Um, It was a lifeline hospital providing critical, critical services. And from the time that I arrived to the two weeks, um, I saw its decline. I saw the fall of a hospital before my very own eyes. And, you know, in war, we're used to talking about the fall of cities, the fall of Mosul or Saigon. Um, And suddenly we've normalized somehow that the fall of Al-Shifa Hospital and the fall of Alexa Hospital, we've normalized the, the, the fall and uh, complete dismantling of healthcare infrastructure, totally paramount to saving lives, not only in a war zone, but in an otherwise high-functioning, high-capacity society. Um, and, and it's unconscionable that we continue to, 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 to watch this unfold. Um, in terms of UNRWA, it, has, it provides services throughout the region. Um, I have worked in the West Bank and in Gaza. I've worked in Lebanon, in Shatila refugee camp, in Burj al-Barajni. They provide schooling services. I've been to their schools. They provide health services, um, education. And so it, it, the, the 
thought of defunding such an in, uh, an organization that provides jobs, education, healthcare, other services that are not otherwise available um, really is deeply disturbing uh, as we're now producing a generation of orphans, um, a generation of children with new disabilities who will then have no access to uh, to healthcare, education, or other services that would be able to, in some way, help relieve some of their pain and get them back to a functioning society. And Dr. Jelani, you um, have spoken about the fact that many patients uh, may not have survived, but their pain would certainly have been eased if the proper medical supplies were made available, if minimally uh, medication, you spoke specifically of morphine uh, could be administered to ease their pain. I mean, if you could explain, you know, the, how you work under conditions where you don't have access to even minimal medical supplies and what it, it is that you're calling for. Well, it's the doctors and nurses and healthcare staff of Gaza who have displayed just absolute colossal bravery in how they see their patients, many of whom haven't been paid, many of whom are themselves displaced. Um, four or five times over, scavenging for food, water, shelter, and then showing up to work, as I mentioned in one of those uh, notes, strenuously uh, to serve their communities, and then coming to a workplace that doesn't have what they need to be able to treat their patients with dignity. There is no death with dignity in Gaza on the floor of an emergency room. At the beginning of my time in Gaza, we did have access to morphine, but by the end, there was no access. And at, at that point, it becomes a, a very cruel and inhumane situation to have someone actively dying without any pain or comfort to offer them. Um, there was, I recall vividly, uh, a young boy that had come in not for a life-threatening injury, um, but for stitches because of some deep lacerations when we would usually use ketamine in a situation like that because it's safe and in children it provides both pain relief and amnesia so they're not re-traumatized from the procedure. Of course, we didn't have ketamine. And so I tried any distraction measures I could with this young boy. I have sort of flashing lights in my arsenal as a pediatrician. I have some toys. And he just was screaming through the pain. Um, I, and then when I tried to ask him questions and engage him uh, to distract him, because that's a mechanism, a coping mechanism we can use, um, you know, what quite, every question is a landmine. What I would typically say in the U.S. is who's your best friend? Well, his best friend probably or might be dead. Uh, what's your favorite food? I don't know the last time this young child ate and um, would probably re-traumatize him further. Um, you know, are you closer to your mom or dad? He came in as a as a as an orphan with uh, with only family extended family members. There is no part or no prism or facet of their life that has been left untouched. It is completely devastated and in a cataclysmic situation. Can you talk more about being a pediatrician in a war zone and also people seeing you as a foreigner coming in and you uh, parts we didn't play talk about people just coming up to you and saying ceasefire? Yeah, absolutely. People, as the, as the days went on, more and more crowded into the hospital seeking safe shelter. And so you would see entire families perched on blankets. Um, and so you would, you, they would recognize us as foreigners. And their little blankets served as 
their bedroom, their coffee room, their breakfast room, their kitchen, um, just in the, in the hopes that the hospital would keep them safe and they would see us and turn to us and, and see us as foreigners and say, ceasefire? Or even more heartbreakingly, so take me with you. Where can we go? Where is safe? Um, in terms of being a pediatrician, I've worked in, in war zones. I've worked in refugee rescue boats off the coast of Libya, Libya. I've worked in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Lebanon, and Egypt. I have never treated this many war-wounded children in my career. No system is built to withstand what these people are going through. Um, on one day, as you saw, four out of five of the children whom we were actively resuscitating, which means trying to bring back from the brink of death, four of five of my patients were under the age of 15, so children. And the extent, extent of the injuries, the scale and magnitude and severity, especially in terms of burns, is also something that I've not witnessed, borne witness to before. We had, um, we had an approximately 11-year-old girl whose face was completely charred black and her arms were flexed and contractured and sort of waxy because the burns had penetrated all the way down to the very flesh of her. And um, the smell of burnt flesh permeated the entire emergency room and, and will stay with me for a very long time. Dr. Seema Jalani, we only have a minute, but if you could say it's already so unbearable to just hear accounts of what you're saying. Why do you do this work and, and what has it been like for you from one war zone to the next and now in a place like Gaza, as you say, where you've never seen so many children uh, in, in an emergency room of a hospital? It is the absolute honor and privilege of my life to be able to be let into people's moments whether they are tragic moments of death and pain or whether they are a new baby being born and counseling a new mother on breastfeeding. It is the absolute honor of my life to serve the people of Gaza. And I am so lucky to have served alongside these towering heroes that are nurses and doctors and people that are serving their communities. And that's why we'll keep going back and keep doing this work. And, and, and on the, on the, Flip side of that, I would say it is all of our responsibility to consider those orphans, consider those those families who are completely bereft of of any and all um, uh, human dignity that has been taken from them. And it's it sits with us. Their fate will sit with us. Dr. Seema Jelani, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Dr. Jelani, senior technical advisor at the International Rescue Committee, where she leads their emergency health responses globally. She's recently joined an emergency team of doctors from IRC and Medical Aid for Palestinians who went to central Gaza to volunteer in the Al-Aqsa Hospital. And that does it for today's show. I'm Narmeen Sheikh with Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.